Hi, I'm Lynette from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Ricky Woolman. Based in Durham, North Carolina, Ricky is founder and CEO of Written Word Media. Her company offers a number of services to authors and readers and publishers, including Free Booksy, Bargain Booksy, New In Books, Red Feather Romance, and Reading Stacks, all of which I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about a bit in this interview. In addition to their various services geared towards helping authors build bigger audiences and sell more books, you can also sign up for their popular newsletter at writtenwordmedia.com and find a lot of really great articles and guides that are an excellent resource for all authors and publishers, from those who are just getting into publishing to those who've been at it for a long time. You can follow Written Word Media on Twitter at writtenwordm and on Facebook at Facebook slash writtenwordmedia. In this interview, we're going to talk about Ricky's background and career, professional interests, written word media a bit, online book marketing generally, and some of the bigger issues being talked about in the book publishing community these days. So thank you, Ricky, for being on the Front Matter podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Len. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way to the U.S. and subsequently to North Carolina that you now call home. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was born and raised in South Africa, in Johannesburg, um, and I made my way to the U.S. Um, soon after I finished high school. Um, I came here for college, and um, I was up in the Northeast, um, did an undergrad degree, and majored in psychology and economics, uh, which turned out to be a really great combination um, for my career in digital marketing. And um, spent a couple of years in, in New York, um, and then was, I was back in Boston for a while. Um, and then we moved down to North Carolina over a decade ago now. Um, we came down here because my husband was um, headed to, to Duke to get his master's degree, and we really fell in love with the area. Um, it's absolutely beautiful down here. It has some really great people, and uh, that's now where we call home and where Written Word Media is also headquartered. Um, this next question's a bit selfish. I do that sometimes on the podcast, but I noticed from your LinkedIn profile that you worked as an investment banking financial analyst at Bear Stearns, which I assume was your, your New York years. Um, this question's a bit inside baseball, but uh, I used to be an investment banker myself based in London doing M&A in the utilities sector for an Australian bank called Macquarie. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your experience was like. I, I learned a great deal in my two and a half years or so that I'll never forget, including the fact that I can work 43 hours straight and a few other things uh, that were maybe not so good to learn. Uh, but uh, I also learned that definitely, you know, investment banking is, not nef- is definitely not a career that you should do long term unless you love it. Yeah, it is not for the faint of heart, definitely. Um, but it's an incredible foundational experience for any career is what I would say. I, I learned a ton, um, both about myself um, and about the world. Um, as you referenced a little bit about the 43 hours, you, you learn what your physical and psychological limits are. Um, and not that you should be doing that all the time, nor did I particularly enjoy it. But, you know, as you continue on into other areas, um, you are able to look back on that time and say, okay, well, if I've got this thing I've got to push through, I know I can do it because I've done this before. And so it does give you a little bit of a, um, I think, psychological edge and almost like an inner coach um, because you've gone through that. Um, I would say one of my favorite parts of investment banking was that um, it introduced me to the Excel spreadsheet, um, which I have um, a long love affair with and continue to today. Um, being a data-oriented person, it was it was awesome to get the kind of training that you get on Wall Street or we did back then um, on how to u- utilize Excel because you're constantly building models. Um, 
So that was great. Um, and then this is something I didn't realize at the time, but although banking is probably the farthest thing that you would imagine from the publishing industry, um, it actually utilizes the power of story um, in a very effective way because you said you were in M&A, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So if you think about, you know, M&A, um, for those people who, who, who don't know exactly how it works, when, when bankers are trying to um, pitch a deal for two companies to merge, um, they'll put together um, a slide deck or a pitch book um, that'll explain how these two companies can come together and why that would be a good thing. And basically, it's a story. It's a story about you got company A and you got company B. Um, and, you know, these are the audiences or consumers or whatever it might be that they're selling on each side. Um, and this is how we think they'll be better together. And then you're taking that and you're selling it both to the companies or to the investors or to other people. Um, and so when I look back at it, there was a lot of storytelling that was happening in banking, even though it was maybe through the format of graphs and spreadsheets and pitch books, um, which, you know, is, is something I thought was interesting. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. It's uh uh, that that brought back a few memories in me, and including um uh, being able to uh, immediately kind of pivot to a new story is actually something you need to be able to do. I remember being told one time, uh, "Don't show so and so a toothy graph." Uh, <laughs> so so you actually you actually change the parameters so that it doesn't look you know that it, it sort of doesn't look so spiky just because that person doesn't like it. And you can I mean I've done this in sort of startup world going into venture capital meetings and stuff like that, where suddenly someone's like, I'm not interested in this, but what about that? And you have to immediately be able to construct some narrative, right? And, yes, and, exactly. And, Use and, what you have at your disposal to, to suit the narrative that you're trying to tell. And, and, and it also has to have, whatever you say has to have the virtue of also being true, uh, which is, which is the thing you're, you're you can't make it up, uh, <laughs> but you have to be creative. Um, and uh, yeah, sorry, just to share one thing. When it comes to spreadsheets, like, that's so important and it's so useful. Uh, I remember one time getting a, a spreadsheet of some information from a third party, like one of the big five accounting firms that actually had hidden data in it. They'd hidden sheets. So I learned how to write VBA code to crack the password to get into the hidden <laughs> <Of course laughs> sheet. Because, yeah, because like well, if that's gold, right? They're, try they're trying to hide it from you for a reason. Uh, and uh, anyway, that's just an example of the kind of things that Ricky would have had to do, you know, at sort of three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, you know, in her work at Bear Stearns, you know, same, same thing for me. It was, you know, it, it's, it's not just sort of like learning pivot tables. It's like really, uh, really intense and really useful to understand. Um, and so you... You eventually moved on to do an MBA uh, at Harvard Business School. What was that like? Um, it was, I mean, it was great. It was, let me back up a little bit. Um, so I went to, I went to business school with a very specific mission. Um, and that mission was actually to get um, more involved in retail because after banking, I worked for a couple of years um, doing microfinance. So I liked the finance aspect of banking, um, but I wanted to apply that in a different world. Um, and so I was doing microfinance. Um, and at the same time, I was running a little home-based business um, off of a platform called Yahoo Store, which was like this brand new platform back then where you could open up a little store on Yahoo and sell things. Um, and I was selling fair trade goods um, on this Yahoo Store um, and doing some um, you know, different um, parties or um, vending at different stalls and festivals around Boston. And um, I ran into a problem with cash flow 
because I was, I, I was running a pretty decent business. I was selling goods um, at a higher price than I was purchasing them. However, however, every time I had to go in and put a big order in, um, I was always short of the cash that I needed for that. And so when I looked at this little business that I have, I wanted to figure out how are either bigger companies and smaller companies, entrepreneurs doing this. Um, and so I went to business school with the explicit goal of trying to figure that out um, and trying to understand more about how retail companies worked. Um, the experience was, was um, way more enriching than I, than I could have imagined. Um, you do learn a very specific skill set at business school, um, but at Harvard, they use the case study method. And so what lands up happening is not only are you learning some um, skills that you can then apply out in the business world, but you are basically getting crash courses in all these different industries that exist um, throughout the world because the case study gives you um, this bird's eye view of this is the industry, this is the problem, um, how will you deal with it? Um, as well as a lot of um, you know, practical experience in leadership problems um, that you might face or leadership challenges on how to be a better leader. So it was a very rewarding experience um, and something that I feel very grateful to have been able to have. And what was your first experience in online marketing after that experience? Um, so I went to work for a grocery store, which is not the answer you usually hear from a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this one um, I, my husband, my, my, Farrell, who's currently my husband was um, not my husband at the time. Um, but I thought he had potential and I thought, you know, it might be worth sticking around in Boston for another year or two to see what's going to happen with this guy. And, um, I wanted to do something that was, that was general, that was more generalist. And there is a grocery chain up in Boston, um, owned by our hold, a Dutch company that runs stop and shop and giant. And they had a management rotation program where you would work for them for a year and they would rotate you through all the different corporate departments um, as well as give you in-store experience. And I felt really strongly that in-store experience was, was critical because you can't understand how to manage a grocery store chain if you don't understand what employees are dealing with on a daily basis. Um, so I literally um, worked in the grocery store and Valentine's Day, I was putting together bouquets of flowers. Um, on Thanksgiving, I actually worked the cash register because that's one of the, the day before Thanksgiving, one of the busiest days in grocery. So I spent my first three, mo three months actually rotating through the different departments in grocery and then the, the nine months subsequent um, in the corporate headquarters um, working in marketing in some of the other departments. Um, so that was my first first retail job, um, learned a ton. And then we moved down here and I was lucky enough to um, find a job with the body shop, which is, um, was one of the first ethically based companies. Um, kind of, it was, you know, the Toms of beauty um, before Toms even existed, um, founded by a, a female entrepreneur out of the UK. And when I went to work for the body shop, um, this was when e-commerce was really just starting to gain traction within companies. This is probably, you know, three or four years after my Yahoo store experience. Um, and I was able to get incredible experience helping them um, scale and run their e-commerce operations. And um, that's really where I got into digital marketing in a big way, um, which has been the platform from which I've been able to build Runwood Media. Yeah, you've, you've seen online marketing from a lot of different directions, you know, uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what's the biggest change you've seen in online marketing in your career? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think the biggest change has been 
probably the the gating of access to audience. So when I think back to when Facebook first started and you created a, um, a fan page and people could like you, um, it may be hard to believe now, but when you would post something to your your page, every single person who logged on that day would see your post, 100% of them. Um, and then that started, you know, dropping and it was 98% and 90%. And, you know, today you're lucky if 3% of the people see what you're actually posting. So I think that has been a fairly dramatic change um, and one that has been um, also, I think somewhat painful for both sides of the equation, you know, both the, the end user and the consumer, because I you know, I'm also using these tools um, as a person. And if I like a brand, it means I want to see what that brand has to say. Or if I like a personality or an author, I'm interested in, in, in hearing what they have to say. Um, and that author or personal brand is trying to get some message out to me. Um, and having that relationship be stymied in some way um, has been a, a pretty dramatic change that has happened really over the last decade. Speaking of stymied relationships, um, one thing that everybody who's, you know, even got their own personal website, but also running a corporate website has run into in the last little while is something called the GDPR, or General Data Protection Regulation mm -hmm. from the EU. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you generally, uh, as an expert in online marketing, has the fight for online privacy negatively impacted the ability of marketers to directly target people? And um, I, what do you think about the idea that people should be able to own their own personal data and somehow get paid for it when it's used by various companies to learn about them or their demographic? Yeah. So let me start with the impact piece. Um, I think the impact has been varied depending on the different industry that you, that you're in. Um, we haven't been impacted that much, um, but that's because we've always, you know, had a kind of an opt-in policy and we're also not in one of those highly sensitive categories like pharmaceuticals or, or, or something of the like. Um, I really believe that it's very important that people have the right to privacy if they want it um, and the right to own their own data. Um, as a consumer, however, when it comes to marketing, I actually really like the idea of targeted marketing. So, um, like, so here's an example. Um, I have young children in my home and sometimes in the fall on a Sunday, we'll put on the TV and we'll watch a football game. And, um, for any of you who watch football, you know that there are tons of commercials and some of the most popular commercials are for, um, games, video games, um, or upcoming movies. And they are very violent. And so in our household, when we're watching football, you get to watch 10 minutes of football. And then you're like, literally, I'm saying to my kids, close your eyes, don't look, don't look every time a scary ad comes on. Now, I would love to be able to tell my cable provider, I have young children in the home, I do not want to see these types of ads, only show me, I'd be happy if the ads for, you know, Disney or some of the, those types of things came on that were child friendly. And so I think that's where advertising needs to go. Consumers need to be able to raise their hand and say, I know I'm going to be advertised to, these are the things that I'd like to see um, without feeling like they're in some way their privacy is being violated. Thanks for that really great answer. You're reminding me of... Um... I think it was a, a couple of tweets I saw. One was a, someone saying, you know, I can't sit down with my kids and watch baseball without having to explain to them what boner pills are now, you know? Uh, right. And <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is modern parenting for you, Len. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and um, I, I, I saw another one, I think it was from someone in San Francisco who was saying, uh, 
my kids don't watch TV, but we were in the hotel and we just turned it on and they saw their first, one of them saw their first pharmaceutical ads and were horrified by the last two thirds of the ad, which was just this long explanation of like all these terrible things that can happen to your body. Maybe if you take right. it. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so I, I mean, I don't have kids myself, but I can, I, I can somewhat understand, I think the, the idea that like not all of a sudden having, you know, some gory zombie being shot in the head, uh, being on the TV after, you know, a touchdown is something that you would very much like to uh, avoid, avoid seeing. And that being able to just send some information about, you know, look, like here, here are my preferences would be really useful. My next question is a bit specific, uh, and it's a little bit long, so please bear with me. Sorry about that. But um, it wasn't too long ago that I remember everyone in the tech world was like, you know, email's the worst, let's replace it with something better. Um, I even worked on a product like that myself for a couple of years. And yet now we're all basically using unstructured internet relay chat and Slack, which is in many ways arguably even worse than email. And at the same time, the email newsletter has exploded, not just as a serious marketing tactic, but even as a business model itself for people who produce written content or make recommendations. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why do you think email newsletters have proven so popular in the last few years? Is there an element of curation that makes them distinct from what I'm going to call the algorithm hellscape of auto-selected content we're you know, constantly having thrust at us online? Um, I, I, this is a great question. I love this question. I have always been a fan of email. Um, obviously, our company is built on email, so I'm a little bit biased. Um, but the, the data year after year after year um, just shows how compelling email is in terms of its effectiveness compared to all the other things that have come along. You know, there's been so many promises of different other marketing tools or techniques um, that really haven't lived up to the types of effectiveness email can have. And I think some of your hypotheses are interesting. I don't have a definitive answer on why email is so um, successful. Um, but I think part of it is that there is a um, sense of control that you have as a user when it comes to email. Um, you proactively signing up right, to hear from whoever it is that's emailing you. Um, so, so the content is pre-vetted. You kind of, this is, it, it kind of goes back to my raising, raising your hand. Um, you've raised your hand. You said, I want to hear from this brand. So the content that is coming in is stuff that you know you're going to be interested in. Um, you know you can unsubscribe anytime. So you don't have that anxiety of, well, what if I don't like this content or what if, you know, this ad platform is creeping on my other stuff. Um, and it's a place that you're familiar with, you know, when you go and check your inbox, but it's also a place you can, you can enter and leave kind of on your own terms. So I think, you know, I'm taking kind of the psych psychology um, lens to this when I think about human behavior and why is it that email in the inbox is something that we're so comfortable with. And those would be a few of, of the ideas that, that I would have around that. Yeah, thanks. That's a really great answer. I actually hadn't quite, quite thought of it in those terms myself before. Um, but yeah, the idea that like, you know, you've signed up for it. If you get an email like that, you know, you've signed up for it. You know, you can easily unsubscribe. And it reminds me of something I've noticed as a change in the last, you know, running online stuff for the last 10 years or so in my career that you, in the past, it was more common, at least in my experience to get people going, Hey, I never signed up for this, you know, get, get me off of it, but not knowing, forgetting that they signed up, not mm -hmm. understanding that it's not a scam just because it's on the computer 
you know, and not knowing that there's unsubscribe links. But the convention has changed, and everybody knows now uh, that oh, if you get one of those emails, it's probably because you signed up for it, even if you don't remember. Oh, and even if it's something going on, you can easily unsubscribe or send it to your archive or something like that. And so people's understanding of email has actually improved over the years. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. We've, we've basically, as e- we've, we've evolved, um, even though email hasn't changed that much. And so um, you, we haven't had the same kind of degradation that we have maybe on the social platforms, which actually goes back to what we were talking about before, which is on the platforms when you go on there, because you're now, you've got a gate, you've got an intermediary between you. You're not sure what you're going to see. Whereas in email, although if you're a Gmail user, there are two very small ads at the top. For the most part, everything in your inbox is something you've signed up for. You're not going to see something that's unexpected. Um, and I think there's something um, that gives people a sense of security and safety about that, that you don't feel when you, when you are in other places on the web. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, Twitter is actually a, a, a dangerous place, you know, uh, any anybody can just suddenly say anything to you at all. And like, you know, you know, even even if you're a privileged person, you know, in sort of conventional terms, like, you know, you send a tweet like anybody from out there can come at you. And it can be anything from, you know, a Russian agitator to, you know, a creep. Uh, and so, you know, email definitely offers you um, comfort and protection, at least in comparison to that, just totally being open. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's a happy place compared to Twitter, um, which is, you know, I'm not brave enough to really be on Twitter. So I um, I applaud those who are, but I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> it yeah. feels like a very unsafe space. <laughs> yeah. It, no, it, it really is. I mean, you know, public service announcement, like it, it's a dangerous place. Um, and, uh, you know, you need to, uh, use that, use that mute button, uh, if you're on there. Um, so, uh, having gone into some of the theory, um, uh, let's go more into some of the theory of online marketing. Um, each of your book discovery and promotion brands is designed to face a distinct audience of readers. How did you go about this? I know there's a lot of answers to this, but, uh, you know, how did you go about deciding which five audiences to choose? I imagine these decisions were heavily data-driven based on your experience gathering market and audience information over the years. Yeah, so um, as we added uh, different brands and properties, we were really guided by the data that was coming both from um, readers um, and authors. But in the beginning, it you know FreeBooksy, which is our our first and kind of flagship brand. Um, was really built around this need for curation of the free books that were available on Amazon because there were so many on any given day, but making your book free is such a powerful marketing technique to build readership um, for authors. And it's a risk-free way for readers to try out new authors and explore um, different books that they might not have. So it's a very effective discovery mechanism. And so um, Freebooksy was built for that purpose. Um, we actually, in, in, originally, we did have um, genres you could choose from because we thought it was very important to have curated, personalized content going to the reader. Um, and then those genres have grown as we've gotten feedback from readers predominantly who have said, you know, you have mystery, um, but I like a specific subset of mystery. It's called cozy mystery. And I'd like to be able to only see those books and not have to, you know, look through the three or four mystery books to see if that one's in there. And so we've actually gotten a lot more granular in terms of the, the 
genre definitions that we have, um, which makes the experience for readers all the more rewarding um, and all the more relevant because the books that they're seeing are very specific to the subtype of um, genre that they're, they're, they are very interested in. Um, and then, yeah, and so then Bargain Booksy is similar. It's, it's a deal-focused. It's kind of, we call it our Groupon for books. Um, so that is where you get um, books that are usually on sale for a very limited time. Uh, Red Feather Romance was born out of the need of our romance reader community who really, um, they're an incredible, awesome bunch of people um, who love to read romance. So they're pretty voracious and they're reading three or four books a week um, in this genre. And so they wanted a place where they could get an email every single day that came out with just the types of romance books that they were looking for. Um, and our, our most recent site, um, Reading Stacks, um, he's actually following the trend of subscription services, which we're seeing pretty much pop up in every aspect of your life. Um, but there's the Kindle Unlimited subscription program through Amazon. Um, there's Scribd. There's the Audible um, subscription program. And what we were hearing from readers is that they have the same problem within a subscription program that they do if they're purchasing a book, which is how do I choose what to read next? How, how do I choose what to redeem my Audible credit on? How do I choose which book to borrow from, you know, Scribd this month? And so we're trying to help um, ease the pain um, uh, when it comes to that choice and say, okay, you know, you got one credit or, you know, you're, you're part of this all you can eat buffet. Here are some books that you might want to go ahead and grab, um, which saves the reader um, time and they get a lot more value out of this subscription. Um, so that one was very much trend based and data based. Um, and that, that site is brand new. It's, um, it was launched this year. Yeah, and actually, this this isn't in my list of prepared questions, but um, I just wanted to actually give you an opportunity to explain to any authors listening uh, how it is that they can use your service to reach these readers or your services. Yes, absolutely. Um, and what I'll say is all this information is on our website, and we do have great customer service. We have a team of people here um, who work with authors every day and would be happy to answer your questions. So if you write us, we will respond, and we will respond really quickly. Um, and we like to sometimes give personalized advice to authors. So if you write in and send us your books, we'll say, okay, this is the right brand for you, and this is what we would recommend you do. Um, but basically – what written word media does is we help connect readers with authors. So as I've been referencing readers sign up and they tell us very specifically what genre they like to read. And then they get a daily or weekly email with book recommendations for the genres they have chosen. Um, authors then come to our platform and they can pay to be featured in one of our promotional slots within those emails. So if you are a cozy mystery author and you have a book that's going to be free, you would then run that book on free booksy in the cozy mystery genre. On the day that your book is free, it would go out to all of our cozy mystery readers. So if you're a cozy mystery reader, you'd open the email, there would be Len's cozy mystery book, um, and you would get um, thousands of downloads. If you're on bargain booksy, you would get, you know, a bunch of sales on that book. And so what that does is the reader is getting a curated selection free or a discount, um, or if it's the Red Feather site, it's not discounted, but the reader is finding what they need. And the author is getting um, sales and new readers who come through and discover them. And so 
It's a very effective marketing technique. Um, it's not the only one that you can use because you do have to do other things to build up your readership, um, but it's very um, effective. And what I like about it the most is it's hyper-efficient. It's probably the most efficient in terms of time and money um, when it comes to your marketing dollars because booking with us will take you five minutes. Um, the amount that we charge um, is nominal and is related to the results that you're going to see. And so you, you could spend... You can spend five minutes booking a promotion with us. You know you're going to see great results um, and then move on to writing or doing the other marketing that you need to do. Um, but you won't really find any other marketing tool in your arsenal that's going to be quite as efficient as that. Yeah, actually, that, that leads me to my next, next unplanned question, which is um, uh, I know that you, uh, you actually, you, you, as you mentioned, you actually use your own data to, to uh, determine your pricing to make sure that the price that the author pays for the service is related to the outcome that they're most likely to see. That is correct. So what we do is we are able to look at the data on how many um, copies of a book are being sold at the different price points and then and by genre. So we, we look at the data again, very granularly, which is why when you go to our website, you'll see that there's a price differential. If you buy a cozy mystery on bargain book C, that might be a $60 purchase. If you buy a children's book, that might be a $30 purchase. The reason that there's a price difference is that the audience size is different potentially um, and the engagement of the, of the audience is going to be different. So we every month say, okay, how many on average, an author who's running a cozy mystery book, how many books are they going to sell? And then we kind of price at that midpoint. That's the average. So when you look at our pricing, if the price is $60, it means the average author sells $60 worth of books, usually within 48 hours of running the promotion with us. Now, it follows a, um, a distribution curve, just like everything else, which means that some authors might only be selling $20 worth of books, whereas other authors might be selling $120 or $150 worth of books. We, especially on Bargain Booksy, our philosophy there is every author deserves a shot. So we're, we are not being the gatekeeper there. We're saying, you give us your book, we're going to put it out there and let the reader judge for themselves, which is why that site tends to have more variance. Whereas if your book doesn't have a great cover or if you don't have reviews, you might be at the $20 range. If you've got a great cover, you've got tons of reviews, you might be at the $120, $150. Um, but we kind of price it at the midpoint um, to make it as fair as possible. Yeah, I think it's it's a really I I mean I think it's a really brilliant model, particularly because of the transparency. Uh, that you know there there would the price would be zero if it didn't work. The reason the price is non-zero is because it does work and it's proven to work. And um, uh, you know I remember having you know my own experience doing some you know Facebook advertising at one point where they basically just got a trust us button, uh, mm -hmm. and it's like I don't trust you because um, <laughs> you've given me no reason to, and this is just a money pit. Uh, but you know, with your particular model, and like, again, the, the model behind it is great, but the transparency about it, uh, I think really is, is a, is an important differentiator. Um, we've got about 20 minutes left. Uh, so while I've got your, your very valuable time. I thought I'd move on to, uh, talk to you about the publishing industry, uh, which is something I was really looking forward to talking to you about in this interview. Uh, one thing I would, I should briefly mention is, um, I was saying to Ricky before this interview started, I've had interviews prevented by or interrupted by various things, including once a poisonous snake approaching an author on a hillside. Uh, every, everyone turned out okay. This interview has been delayed twice, once by a 
power outage and once by a hurricane. Uh, so I want to make the most of the next 20 minutes that we have. Um, uh, so you well, wrote- the third time's a charm. And <laughs> yes, for some reason, the universe didn't want us to, to do it on those first two occasions. But today is the day. Today's the day. Um, so way back in January, you wrote a great post called Top 10 Publishing Industry Trends Every Author Needs to Know in 2019. And I know you've done these prediction posts before and thought this might be a good chance to see how things turned out now that we're later on in 2019. One thing I found really interesting to follow this year is the growing sense in the self-publishing community that authors should be paying for advertising on platforms, you know, of course, like yours, but also like Amazon. Uh, this wasn't a part, a, a part of the discourse in the past in the same way that it is now. Um, have you found that services like, I think it was called Amazon Marketing Services, or maybe it's just Amazon Advertising now, uh, have in fact become more mainstream amongst authors this year? And have authors been getting the hang of it? Um, yes. So the Amazon marketing platform has become a lot, a lot more mainstream this year. I would say it, it really hit a tipping point um, towards the end of last year, um, where a lot of authors, at the very least, were you know setting up their accounts, which is very easy to do if you publish through directly through Amazon. There's literally just a button you push to open up the interface, um, and were at least attempting to run ads on the platform. Um, in terms of the effectiveness. Um, it's been really mixed, and we actually recently ran a survey. We'll be publishing the results um, in the next couple of weeks in one of our blog posts um, where we asked authors a lot of questions, um, and we got an amazing response. We got over a 1,000 authors who responded. And so I actually might even just pull up that data quickly now, but one of the questions we asked them was when it comes to the effectiveness of marketing, what is most um, rate the following um, marketing services or tools on a scale of one to five, um, one being the least effective, five being the most. And so when it came to Amazon ads, um, we had 900 people actually answer the question. So I think that goes to your how mainstream is it is. You know, 90% of the authors filling out our survey um, filled out that question, which means they must have tried it at least once. Um, we don't know exactly to what extent, but they, were, they are trying it. Um, however, um, 45% of people rated it a one or two, um, with only 6% of it, of authors rating at a five. So what I would say is authors are having very mixed results. I think authors that really stay, stay with it and maybe have larger budgets and are very marketing savvy are probably getting it to work for them a little bit. Um, in terms of authors who do not have that, you know, background or the time to spend on it, I think you don't see great results. And I've been on the platform and I'm a digital marketer. I've been on the platform. I've played with the platform. Um, it is challenging. You, it's a full-time job. You really have to know what you're doing. You have to be testing a lot of different things. You have to be able to, you know, slice and dice the data to figure out where your pockets are. Um, and, it, and it's changed. It, I would say 18 months ago, the platform was more effective. But as with anything else, as more people have piled in, that you have to be, you have to have some kind of edge um, to be able to make the ads work for you and to get the ROI that you need. So I would say it's definitely a tool that authors are trying. Um, I think it can be effective if you have some dedicated resources or a background in marketing to be able to play with it. Um, but for most authors, that's, you know, it is really challenging. 
Thanks very much for sharing that. I didn't know we'd be uh, breaking news uh, on this podcast. Yeah, but, this but is it, an exclusive. You're yeah. getting that data before anybody else because I'm literally like, I just pulled it up in the, uh, we haven't even, you know, coded it or anything yet and written the article, but I just brought up that graph because I thought that was interesting to be able to have. Yeah, well, that's, there. that's fantastic. Thank you. And if, yeah, if you could um, uh, share the link to the post when it's up, I'll make sure to put it in the transcript uh, for this, for this interview uh, so that everybody can see everything when it's when it's published um you know you're reminding me it's interesting um i've i've wondered before if you know old-timey kind of banner ads you know like put my my book is if you if i pay you money you'll put my book up on your website it will show up here at this time in this place might actually be a better entry point for authors than going into this crazy world where you'd kind of need a phd to understand. And then even like, you know, it's outdated the moment you got it because they just changed something on you. And I've, 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 I, this is actually me just being kind of personal, but I've always been very suspicious of that as a model because even very sophisticated, it's kind of like, I remember encountering some day traders, you know, in my career back in the day, you know, people who you're not going to beat, you're not going to beat the person who's got a desk at Goldman Sachs and all the resources of that organization. You're probably not going to beat them. You're fooling yourself. If you think, that using these really complicated services that are changing on you all the time is actually in your best interest. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, it just comes back to the level of um, sophisticatedness um, of the author and, and where you want to be spending your time. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I very much admire Joanna Penn um, and she talks a lot about this. She says, you know, I know I should be doing more marketing. I probably should be doing Amazon ads, but she says, you know, life's too short. That's not where I want to be spending my time. I want to be spending my time writing my next book. And so her philosophy is I'm just going to put out more titles, even though I know I'm not optimizing all of the marketing stuff that I should be doing, because that makes me a happier person. Um, and the incremental gain that you, she might get for spending hours becoming a digital marketing guru, which she totally could because she's, you know, smart enough, um, she's actually made that choice. And I think that's very freeing to be able to sit down and say, this is where I want to focus my time. When it comes to marketing, I'm going to do these three things and then just be okay with it and not have comparatonitis and say, well, that author's doing that or that author's doing that. I should be doing that too. Because then you live in a state, of, a constant state of, um, of discontent. And so I think there's, there's a lot to also the, the attitude that you want to have when it comes to marketing your books and choose the things that are enjoyable to use, choose the things that are manageable um, and the rest will, it'll fall into place over time. Oh, you know, I, I couldn't agree more actually. I mean, you know, uh, speaking of, you know, book industry news, uh, there was a recent article, an article recently published in the New York times about piracy. I don't know why they're so weird about book publishing in that, in that newspaper. Uh, but they published an article by a guy who talks bo- somewhat boastfully about having a a folder in his email called thieves in uppercase or something like that, where he like records instances of online piracy of his book on. And it's like, what are you doing with your time and your mood and your, and your feelings? Like, yeah, they're winning. They're winning. They're winning. Every single, every single entry in your uppercase thieves folder is someone who like got to you and you let them. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's so important on, on all these different things when it comes to marketing, et cetera, like you, if, if what you're, you know, I don't want to say only do what brings you joy cause that's nonsense. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, don't, don't let, um, don't let your instincts get the better of you. Basically they might lead you astray sometimes. And you sometimes really need, you know, you might be thinking, Oh yeah, I really, I just read this great post or listened to this great podcast about someone who really nailed their complex marketing scheme. 
if that's what you want to get into, get into it. But if it's not, stay away. Choose something that 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 you uh, that you feel that you feel comfortable with is actually like you know some of the best advice you can get. Um, uh, you wrote uh, in your post um, about how quality would increasingly be a differentiator for indie authors uh, in a world saturated. Uh, in a world where people are saturated with choices like we've been talking about and the ability to move seamlessly between services, including subscription services, it does seem that quality is of increasing importance uh, for uh, readers. Do you think there's an uptick generally in quality from self-published authors? I do. I mean, we we see hundreds of books that pass through our platform um, every month and um, the overall trend is an increase in quality. If I look back at the last five years that we've been doing this, um, the quality of books from back then to today is has dramatically improved. Um, and then I, I think even in these kind of small time frame increments, when you look at it, um, authors are understanding what they need to package their books better um, with, when it comes to both the editing as well as the book cover design. And the tools that are out there have gotten a lot better, um, the tools and services. So I think that combination has definitely increased the quality level um, to the point where there are a lot of books I could put in front of you, um, an indie book um, right next to a traditionally published book, and you wouldn't be able to tell me which was which. And I think that is going to continue to happen. Um, I think in five years from now, you, you're in a world where um, most of the books, you, you won't really be able to tell who has published them. Um, of course, you're always going to have the outliers. You know, you're going to have books that are of poor quality and some that are really stellar. But for the most part, I do think we're moving in that direction. One of your predictions that really resonated with me was your claim that in 2019, and I'm quoting here, the number of indie authors making a living solely from writing gross. People who aren't insiders in the self-publishing world might find that surprising uh, because there are various high-profile constituencies out there, particularly in the US and the UK, if you follow the book publishing industry news, that are loudly proclaiming the authors making a living apocalypse is upon us. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you think indie authors are better positioned now to make a living from their writing compared to the past. Sure. Um, so another, another great question. Um, and actually, I think a really cool thing when you look at, there has been a lot of disrupt, disruption in the publishing industry, but one of the cool things that has happened as part of that disruption is that this is an industry where actually you have fewer gatekeepers than you did in the past. So the old model of publishing um, was that you had to submit your manuscript to a publisher. Um, they had to then accept it out of a you know pile of hundreds of submissions they were getting. Um, and then you were published. And from the publisher's perspective, this makes sense. And it still makes sense for the traditional publishers today, because what they have to do is they have to find books that are going to have enough mainstream appeal that they can put large investments behind it and then um, recoup those over time by selling it to the masses. And that's where traditional publishing really shines, is finding these books that appeal to the vast majority of people. In the model of self-publishing and the way that, you know, the proliferation of um, both the internet and being able to have more access to readers online, what that does is it allows for much more niche content to be published because authors can now find those readers. So before it wasn't economically viable to maybe publish a book on a very small subgenre that only 100,000 people were really going to be interested in. But in today's world, that is economically viable 
by doing it through self-publishing and then just finding those readers online. Um, and if you look at something like Wattpad, where there are thousands of stories being published, there are all kinds of genres and subgenres that would never ever have existed in the world of traditional publishing because they appeal to a small micro demographic but the, that micro demographic they love these stories and now they're getting to read them whereas before they didn't and so I'm trying to think back to what your question was oh so about making a living and so there is a lot more potential now for authors who are writing into what were maybe not these mass appeal genres to actually write and make a living from that writing because they're able to connect with their readers and it's now an, it now is an economically viable path for them. Yeah, that's that's a really fascinating topic of finding finding niche audiences and there's there's actually a bit of back and forth between online and books and mortar, um, which um, James James Daunt, who's new the new CEO of uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, turned around Waterstones by basically uh, doing two things, as I understand it. One was um, ending a program by which publishers paid a bunch of money to have their books, the books they decided should be on display, on display in bookstores. And something like, I think it was something like at 15% of books that were being put on display were actually being returned to publishers because they weren't selling. Um, and so he ended that program, but he also instituted greater selectivity on the part of people who ran the bookstores and worked in the bookstores they knew what their they know they they knew what their customers wanted they live in the communities they taught they literally talk to the people who come in in the door and once they decided once waterstones decided let's like give more autonomy to their bookstores the the amount of kind of remaindered books went down dramatically um and when i talk about the back and forth between online and and bricks and mortar amazon's doing something similar where they 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 know what people they, they know what toothbrushes people are buying in your community if right. they put a bookstore up you, they've got lots of information about what people in that community are interested in sort of literally minute by minute absolutely uh, i mean data is the new currency basically it's the most valuable thing um but that's really interesting i did not know that about the waterstones turnaround. Um, but basically it's the indie bookstore model, right? So you look at Barnes and Nobles is struggling, but indie bookstores um, in communities are actually doing pretty well. And exactly to your point, it's because when you walk in and you ask that person, hey, I'm interested in, you know, this esoteric thing, the person in the indie bookstore says, I've got the book just for you. I, I know exactly what it is and can walk over and find that specific title for you. And so, you know, the same thing is happening with indie authors writing into those segments and then finding those communities online. So it, it'll be very, I'm very curious to see how the Barnes & Noble turnaround goes um, yeah. under the leadership. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, the, the local knowledge thing, like, you know, I mean, if you've got a homelessness problem in your community, it could be that the, there's an increased interest in books on homelessness. You know, it, it can, it, it's, it's, it's not a kind of, this the niche audience is not a made up thing. It's like a, a feature of our lives. Uh, so the last, so we've got a couple of minutes left. The last question I, I, I wanted to ask you was, are uh, you right on your site that you're driven by the idea that books are a force for good in the world? Uh, I think I can probably safely say that everyone listening to this podcast shares that view. Uh, but just to play devil's advocate for a moment, if you encountered someone who said that in a world of online courses and easily searchable, largely free, bite-sized, readable content, and all kinds of video and audio, uh, if they said that books were no longer the force that for good that they once were, what would you say to such a devil's advocate? I would disagree. Um... I would, I would disagree pretty vehemently. I think that in some respects, books are more important than ever. Um, 
if you think about the book, it's basically it's perfected the format for long form storytelling or knowledge sharing. And in the world today, we were more and more distracted. Um, I think the refuge of a book becomes more critical. I think it gives us a place to go for deep thinking and for focus. And I think that is becoming more of a need that we have as people and as a society um, with the proliferation of content that is out there. So, you know, I'm, um, I'm bullish on books. <laughs> I think they're here to stay. Um, and I think they're very, very important to us. Thank you very much for that great answer. Uh, like with so many other things in this interview, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, uh, and thank you for uh, making it through a power outage and a hurricane to finally get to this interview. And thank you very much for taking the time today to be on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you. This was really wonderful. And I so appreciate you having me on. Thanks very much. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you're interested in becoming a LeanPub author, please go to our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.